This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. No one particularly enjoys criticism. We don't like being chided publicly or denigrated openly. But have you ever met someone that just seems to invite the ire of people around them? For some reason, their actions would seem to make them gluttons for such public derision. At times, this is the nature of leadership. Public decisions are often necessary that do not necessarily coincide with public opinion. Unpopular decision-making is often the unenviable task of a good leader. But just because a decision is right doesn't mean it will be lauded publicly. In fact, there are moments where it most certainly will not be. In Ezra chapter 4, Zerubbabel and the leaders of the Jewish nation are forced to make a difficult decision that will cause them trouble and discouragement in the days ahead. On today's podcast, we'll discover why they may have made that decision and what we can learn from it. The first five verses of Ezra chapter 4 read, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Ezra chapter 4 records the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. After having been providentially granted a return, By an incredibly generous royal edict from King Cyrus of Persia, God's people have now returned to their homeland by official order to rebuild the temple and resettle the land according to the law of God. Only God could orchestrate the incredible events of the beginning of Ezra that saw a pagan king, with no real reason to do so, decide to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah and returned the people of God to their homeland, furnished with the instruments and the items of the temple, a blank check from the royal treasury, a royal entourage, and a letter granting them access, safe passage, and supplies needed for their journey. One wonders if this miraculous decision by the king was influenced, in large part by one of his most trusted and revered advisors, Daniel. According to Daniel 6, the prophet flourished as a leader under the reign of Cyrus. Nonetheless, the people return home and begin to build. They build the altar with jubilant celebration and fanfare, as well as the foundations for the temple. Those who had seen the grandeur of the old temple 70 years earlier 
lamented because this new temple did not look like the old temple. And yet the miracle that they were there and rebuilding should have been enough to cause anyone to rejoice. In Ezra 4, a curious interchange leads to hurt feelings and trouble eventually for the would-be builders. The people who had remained in the land, undoubtedly many of them Jews, gathered to help the new people in the building process. They say in verse 2, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Eshar Hadan of Assyria brought us here. Ezra chapter 4 verse 2. And at first glance, this seems to be innocuous enough. It could have even been an opportunity to unite the new and the old by bringing together a people that had been fragmented by their sin. However, we learn in verse 3, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. This rejection provoked these people to instead discourage and intimidate the builders of the temple. We learn, based on the language here, that these people were enemies from the start, but their motives had been clouded or hidden by hypocritical intents to try to intermingle with these people. But now these scorned refugees even bribed officials in the Median court to act against the people of God, to frustrate their plans, until eventually they wrote letters that stopped the work of the temple altogether because the Persians discontinued their support of the project. These events prompt the prophet Daniel to fast and pray, see Daniel 10. And as he is praying, he learns that a spiritual war has been raging between the angels of heaven and some, someone the angel calls the prince of Persia. This demonic influence might have inspired the opposition to the temple reconstruction that we witness in chapter 4 of Ezra. Whatever forces were involved, we see that the temple construction stopped and the work lies dormant for 17 years because of the discouragement and the deception on display here. These circumstances lead me to the question, why would Zerubbabel have refused their help? What was it about these people's offer that Zerubbabel and Jeshua refused to allow? Why were these locals turned away from being involved? Well, as best as I can tell, there are excellent reasons for it. You see, we learn in chapter 3 that a great many of the family heads were already critical of the work that God was doing. The older saints lamented that the new temple didn't resemble the old one. It was different than when they first encountered the temple of God. So there's dissension already within the ranks. This generational criticism has been a recurring problem within the church for centuries. My church doesn't look like my grandfather's church, and that's a problem. So you have to wonder if some of the criticism there within the ranks actually stemmed from the locals who had remained in the land. Their criticism could have led to endless debate regarding what God had already commissioned them to do. Should we really be doing this? I can hear it now. But another factor could have influenced Zerubbabel's rejection of their assistance, and this one is perhaps more convincing. According to Ezekiel chapter 8, before the exile and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the temple had already been defiled by pagan idol worship within its very walls. 
Ezekiel sees the vision of this in Ezekiel chapter 8. Could it be that these people who had remained were continuing to worship God on this site, but also worshiping the other gods that remained here as well? If this were the case, then their loyalty to the God of Abraham likely would have been divided. They would have been practicing the very things that got their people deported in the first place, namely not merely the worship of idols, but worshiping God and these idols as well. This syncretism is what God punished. 2 Kings 17 records for us the fall of Jerusalem and the resettlement of the region of Samaria by Assyria. Now, before Judah's exile to Babylon, the northern region of Israel, known as Samaria, was invaded by this pagan nation, Assyria. And the Assyrian king deported some of the Jews and resettled individuals from other areas in Samaria. This displacement effectively broke up the regional support for insurrection based on shared religious and cultural commonalities. It's easier to keep down resistance when the people living next to one another have nothing in common. This tactic worked both coming and going. What resulted was the region itself had deteriorated to an assortment of different religions and cultures and ethnicities. 2 Kings 17, 33 and 34 describe those who now lived in the land. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. These verses make it clear that these inhabitants were likely still practicing the syncretism that got their neighbors deported in the first place. Zerubbabel was zealous for the purity of the work to which God had called him. There was no place in the work for misguided motives or half-hearted devotion or inclusion and syncretism. He wanted the entire endeavor to remain holy, set apart by God and for God. And the only way to do that was to focus the work squarely on the back of people who pledged their devotion to God alone from the very beginning. We must remember that not everyone willing to help out has our best interest at heart. Now, in our lives, and even in the church and culture, it can be easy for us to serve God and unwittingly serve other things as well. While we aren't blatantly worshiping creations of wood and stone, it can be easy for our allegiance to be divided among the God of Abraham and the gods of amusement, money, and entertainment. We must remember that the work and the life to which God has called us is one of unilateral devotion. We must learn to set aside the things of this world if we are to be about the kingdom's work. Disciples of Christ must be entirely sold out to their master's kingdom and not caught between the trinkets of this world and the calling of the next. Remember Jesus' admonition that no one who lays his hands to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom. If we are to be about the kingdom's work God has called us to be, we must focus our lives on holiness and devotion to God 
refusing to allow the things of this world around us to become more significant than our devotion to the God within us. There is no place in God's kingdom work for disciples who divide their devotion between the gods of this world and the God of all creation. Even here within the church, God has called us to a great work of revitalization. We must labor with a unified and singular focus on making disciples and raising leaders for the kingdom. We cannot allow our motives to be misguided. As Will Mancini has said, churches don't achieve their goals most often because there is an easier course to a lesser goal. Our focus must be on making disciples, and we must live and minister in such a way that this is our focus alone. Anything less will lead to the same place that it would have led with Zerubbabel, the endless debate about the commission to which God has called us, and nobody has time for that. So Father, help us to live lives focused on the commission to which you have called us. Transform us as we abide in your word. Help us to commit this focus and rid ourselves of the lesser gods that often tempt us to dissuade our devotion. Please help us see that the cause is more important than our enticements, and the kingdom is more significant than our amusements. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.